This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. If you've ever taken a, a long road trip, um, you know, you pull out of that driveway at first excited, don't you? You're, you're excited for what lies ahead. You've, you've got your coffee there uh, in, in your cup holder. You've got your destination mapped out in Google Maps. You've got a good audio book uh, playing. Like, that's how we started our family road trip this summer when we headed out of town. And that, that initial excitement when you pull out of the driveway, like it carries you through those first few hours, doesn't it? It seems like they're just, they're just going like that. And, and as the miles and as the hours go, you notice that your eyelids get a little heavier, don't they? And so along the way, you, you pull off, you grab some Starbucks, you get caffeinated, and now you're like, you're ready to go again for a few more hours. And you're driving along and everything's going well. And after a bit, you start to notice, like, the car's quiet. Like, it's really quiet. And then you look around and you're like, your kids are asleep. Your wife's asleep. And you're the only one not asleep. And for whatever reason, that just makes your eyelids, like, extra heavy, doesn't it? It makes your eyelids extra heavy. And what happens is... is as you're kind of losing it, the car starts to drift a little bit, and it's drifting off to the side, and then, right? The rumble strips come, and that violent shaking, like, it wakes you up, it wakes everybody up, and now, instead of pulling off the next exit for Starbucks, your wife's like, no, we're pulling off the next exit for a hotel, hun. That might have been what happened on our road trip. But those, are, those rumble strips, right, they're annoying, aren't they? They're jarring. And yet, as annoying as they are, they're there to protect you, aren't they? They're there to wake you up and alert you that you've drifted off course and, and you're headed towards danger. And so you course correct. You, you head back in the right direction, pursuing that original destination you were headed towards. And you know, sometimes God puts some rumble strips in our lives, doesn't he? He puts rumble strips in our lives that get our attention, that wake us up to that danger that we're headed toward. And they let you know that your, your life has drifted off course, this, this spiritual drift, because you've, you've kind of stopped faithfully following the way of Jesus. And they're there to draw your attention and your affection back to God, renewing your pursuit of God. And as frustrating as those rumble strips in life can be, they're even more important than the ones on the road. And those rumble strips, they're, they're a sign of God's love and his mercy and his grace towards us. They're a sign of his faithfulness to us because they reveal that even when our lives have drifted off course, even when we've pursued things other than God, they reveal that God has never once stopped pursuing us. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we continue in our series in Haggai called Renew, in a sermon called Renewing Our Pursuit of God, Renewing Our Pursuit of God. And we're going to see God put some rumble strips in the path of his people because they had drifted off course. There was this spiritual drift in their lives. And what we're going to see is three things. We're going to see, first, God confront the spiritual drift in their lives. We're going to see God call them to reflect on how it is that they got there. And then we're going to see God call them to renew their pursuit of him. So the first thing we're going to see here, number one, is this. God confronts his people's spiritual drift. Right? God, he's going to confront their spiritual drift. And he's going to, he begins here as he has the first two oracles. This third oracle begins with a setting in verse 10. 
It says, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, Darius the great king of Persia, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Now, this, this third oracle, it takes place, we can actually date it exactly just like the others. It takes place on December 18th of 520 B.C. And if you remember, the first two oracles took place on special days, didn't they? They were special occasions. The first oracle took place on the first of the month, the day where they played trumpets. They celebrated, they worshiped, and they gave a special offering on the first of the month. Last week, we saw that the second oracle took place on the last day of this week-long Feast of Booths that was occurring. But there's nothing special about this state that anyone can find. It's just, it's just a day. Unlike now, where like every day is a national something day. You ever notice that? Uh, like yesterday, I guess, was National Daughter Day. And so everybody that didn't know that yesterday is still posting about that today. Um, they hadn't made a special day for this one yet. And yet what's interesting is this date we see mentioned three times in chapter two. It's mentioned three times, and it's actually the date of the last two oracles. And so like something set this day apart, didn't it? Something made it special, and it wasn't an event on the calendar. And then we go on, we see in, in verse 11, yet again, we see God speaking through his prophet Haggai. We hear divine words spoken through a human mouth. And he says, ask the priests, right? And the priests were the descendants of Moses' brother Aaron. They were the mediators between God and his people, experts in the Mosaic law and in the Torah. And he says, ask the priests two questions, two rhetorical questions, questions about the law. Specifically, they were questions about uh, ritual purity and cleanliness. And he asked the first question in verse 12. He says, if someone carries holy meat in the, in the fold of his garment, kind of like making a little pouch here with your shirt, if somebody carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold, with his, with his clothing, bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does that food then also become holy? And he's describing here uh, a peace offering, which we see in Leviticus 3 and Leviticus 7, one of the five offerings there in the beginning of, of the book of Leviticus, the book that we, can we just be honest, we skip Leviticus a lot of times, don't we? Like you start off reading the Bible, I'm going to read the Bible this year, Genesis, Exodus, <sighs> Leviticus is way cooler than we give it credit for. So the peace, offering, the peace offering was different than the others. It was unique in a couple of ways. Number one, it was unique in that it was a spontaneous offering that was given in response to something God had done, either thanking God for his generosity, as we sang this morning, or in making a, a vow to God of some kind, answering or uh, commemorating his answer to prayer. And the priest, what he would do is he would burn a portion of this offering, either a cow or a sheep or a goat, but then the other thing that made this peace offering, also known as a fellowship offering, unique is that it was the only offering where the remaining portion of the sacrifice or of this offering could be taken home and could be eaten. And this meal then that occurred in the home, it represented this peace, this fellowship that you had with God. But there was a kicker here. There was a kicker with leftovers. You all know my theology of leftovers, right? Um, the meat had to be eaten the next day, and any leftovers after that had to be burned. Uh, if I had written the Torah, I would have suggested we just burn all the leftovers right away. Uh, I think they're vile, disgusting creatures as part of Genesis 3. Clearly, I'm like the only one in this room that doesn't like leftovers, aren't I? Y'all are like shaming me with your eyes right now. I can see them. You're like, we're not sure about this pastor anymore. Doesn't need leftovers. 
just thought I'd share. <laughs> but this meat that was offered to God, it, it had been consecrated by the priests. It had been made holy. And in Leviticus 6, uh, verse 27, it says, whatever touches the flesh shall also be holy. Right? Anything that came in direct contact with the meat would also be made holy. But that wasn't the question. The question was if that holiness was further transferable beyond that. If, if the meat made the garment holy, did the garment make the other ingredients holy as well? Could it transfer that holiness? Was it transmissible? Was it contagious? Uh, like, what is the R-naught value of the holiness of this garment? If only there was a way to illustrate the concept of transmissibility, like something that we were all currently experiencing where something was transmitted easily from person to person, um, like an infectious disease of some kind, only one that was good, not bad, because this is holiness, but I don't know, I couldn't think of anything. But the priests, they answered and said, no. Like, this was obvious to them. The holiness isn't transferable, not beyond the initial recipient. It says so in the fine print back in the law. It's kind of like uh, if you ever win tickets to a game, say you won tickets to the Bears game today, and one, you're going to be late because it's in Cleveland, not in Chicago, but... I'm glad you're here. Uh, if you win tickets to a Bears game, uh, the fine print in the contest is often going to say that these tickets are non-transferable beyond the winner, and that's kind of the way this holiness was. It wasn't transferable. And then he asked another question, and, and the second question goes in the opposite direction, and it's not about holiness, but about defilement. And he asked this question in verse 13. He says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, touches another person... Does it also become unclean? Now we go back to Numbers 19, where we see laws of purification of, of defiled and unclean things. And it says there in verse 11, it says, whoever touches a dead body is unclean for seven days. And again, that wasn't the question. The question was, what if you touch something during that time in the midst of that week? Is that defilement contagious? Is it transmissible beyond them? And the priests answer in verse 13, right? They say, it does become unclean. Well, yes, of course it does. The priests are like two for two on Torah edition of Jeopardy, which is good because that was kind of their job. Like they had one thing they needed to know. It was Torah and they knew it. Numbers 19, 22 says, whatever the unclean person touches during that week, during that time, shall also be declared unclean and also become defiled. These these may not be obvious questions for us, but for the priests, they were. It was like them answering one plus one. It was like them asking, you know, who's the best quarterback on the Bears team, even though our coach has a hard time figuring that one out. But what they're thinking now is like, yeah, but like this is easy stuff. What's the point? Like, what are you getting at, Haggai? Why are you asking us this? And so he goes on in verse 14. And Haggai answers them, and he says, so it is with this people, with this nation before me declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Israel, God's, God's people, they, they were no different than a little kid playing out in the mud. Right? Playing out in the mud, you get, you get filthy, you get mud all over your hands, you get it all over your shoes, and then when you come back inside after playing in the mud, right, you, everything you touch gets muddy, the walls, the floors, your face. And everywhere you walk, you're tracking mud everywhere you go. 
And, and what's, I think, true about little kids with muddy hands is that clean hands don't somehow magically clean a dirty wall, do they? At least that never happened in our house. But what did happen is that dirty hands make for a dirty wall, don't they? But clean hands don't pass on their cleanliness. And even if the child wanted to do something nice for you, let's say, let's say your kid, he goes and plays in the mud, and then he's like, I want to paint you a picture, mommy. The picture's not going to be with paint. The picture's going to be with mud, right? They're going to get it all over, over everything. And I think that's kind of what God's getting at here. He's saying to his people through Haggai, saying every work of their hand, every sacrifice that they offered there on the altar, it was unclean. It was defiled. Every stone that they had laid over these last three months in rebuilding the temple, it was contaminated. It was, it was covered in mud. Everything they touched became unclean because they were unclean. And everything they touched became covered in mud. Not just because their hands were covered in mud, but because their hearts were covered in mud. They were no longer pursuing God with their hearts. And so with every work of their hands, what they offered was unclean. And I think what God's revealing here is, yet again, is the devastating impact that sin has in our lives and in our world and the danger of drifting away from God and pursuing sin rather than his holiness. See, sin, much like mud, much like the dirt, it, it defiles everything it touches. It, it contaminates everything it comes in contact with, right? Nothing is left clean. Everything is stained. And sin, it, it poisons our hearts and our minds. It, it impacts the way that we live, the way that we love the way that we think, the way that we talk, the way that we talk to others, the way we talk about others. It's infected our bodies. It, it causes disease and will lead to our eventual death. And because our hearts are unclean, so is every work of our hands. Even including the things that we build, the things that we create, right? It's all stained by sin because our hearts and our hands are stained. All creation, Paul says in Romans 8, all creation has been subjected to futility and in bondage to corruption, including the very air we breathe and the ground we walk on. Right about now, you're thinking, wow, what a hopeful message. Thanks for bringing the good news, Pastor Ash. I really hope there's a second point. There's two more points. But I want us to think about this for a second. Like, how do we respond when we're muddy, when we're dirty, when we know we're left unclean? I think typically when we see something's broken, we want to fix it, don't we? Or we want someone else to fix it. And when we see that something's dirty, we want to wash it. We want to clean it so that we can create things that are clean. We want to, we want to do that. We want to do that on our own. And, and God has a couple of different responses. He has a couple of different responses in mind. He's going to call us to respond by reflecting and by renewing. And so number two, what we're going to see is God calls his people to reflect on their spiritual drift. He wants us to reflect on it. He's like, how, how'd y'all get here? Let's think about this for a second. So he says in verse 15, he says, now then, consider from this day onward. All right, again, he, he's calling us to reflection. And he wants to begin this time of reflection. Uh, he begins by giving us a reminder. He goes on to say in verse 15, he says, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? How was it going for you? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. And when one came to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. Remember, we talked a, a couple weeks ago from Ezra 4 
the exiles, they began rebuilding the temple when they returned from exile in Babylon, but they, they just got started, and then the pagan people who had settled in, in Palestine during the exile, they, they kind of put a stop to the project, didn't it? They brought it to an abrupt halt. But they also brought to a halt Israel's pursuit of God as a result of that. And as a result of their lack of pursuing God, they began to drift further away from God. And this symbolized something. This meant something, their lack of rebuilding the temple. Old Testament scholar uh, Alec Moyder, he says, the unbuilt house speaks of the unwanted residents. Like we saw that in the first week, didn't we? That if they truly desired God's presence among them, if they really wanted to be with God, if God truly mattered, if he was the chief priority, man's chief end, they would have They wouldn't have let anything get in the way of rebuilding that temple, would they? That would have been the most important thing, but it it wasn't. And it went to the wayside, and they started focusing on their lives and rebuilding their houses while God's houses remained in shambles. And so four months earlier in the first oracle, God, he confronted his people, didn't he? he? He called them to renew their priorities, pursuing God's presence among them by prioritizing the rebuilding of the temple. And the people responded, we saw at the end of chapter 1. They responded, and about three weeks later, the people came, and they worked on the house of the Lord, placing stone upon stone that had already been laid, pursuing God. But much like our eyes get heavy after the caffeine wears off on the long drive, um, this pursuit, this excitement, this, this high, if you will, it didn't last long. And once again, the people of God found themselves expecting much and experiencing little. They were expecting to find 20 measures of grain in the barn, but they only found half that. They only found 10. They were expecting to draw 50 measures of wine from the barrel, but they found less than half. They only found 20. And God, he follows this reminder of their unmet expectations with the reason behind it here in verse 17. He says, I struck you, and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. God's like, I was the one behind it all. That was me doing that. See, throughout the Mosaic Law, God promised blessings upon Israel, uh, both as a nation and as people, as long as they lived in faithful obedience to his word, pursuing his presence. But he also promised curses if they turned from God, if they pursued things other than God, living apart from God. And and in Deuteronomy 28, he says that he will strike them with fiery heat, like middle of August Arizona heat, right? The 120 degrees heat. Even if it's a dry heat, that's 120 degrees. He'll strike them with heat and with drought and with blight. Basically, these, these hot blasts of winds that come from the Arabian Desert to the east. But not only that, he's going to strike them with the exact opposite. He's going to strike them with mildew. The the plants will be diseased from excess moisture as well. And again, we see one of these Hebrew expressions of totality in what's going to happen. And then if that's not bad enough, if any of these crops actually sprout, if any of them actually survive to see the light of day, then they're going to get pelted by hail. And when we see hail show up, it always, it draws us back to the Exodus, right? Much of Haggai, much of Scripture draws us back to the Exodus and the plagues of hail in Egypt. But what God's saying is this blight, this mildew, the hail, he's like, that's all me. 
Those are all rumble strips that God had placed in his people's lives to let them know that they were drifting off course, that they were drifting further and further from him. And God, he was trying to wake them up. He was trying to to draw them back to him to let them know the danger that they're headed towards. But what Israel did, they ran right over the rumble strips. They kept on going right into the ditch. That violent shaking that God put in their lives, it didn't wake them up. Because verse 17 goes on, God says, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. They didn't turn to God. They paid no attention. And like disobedient children, Israel didn't listen to their father's voice calling out to them. And this drifting away was a cycle that we see throughout the history of Israel. Right, God, remember, let's go all the way back to the Exodus. God liberated his people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Like, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? Uh, You'd think, man, we're not going to never forget. How many times do we see that come about in the middle of September? Never forget. I bet they were saying that too. Every year they took Passover. Never forget. And yet it wasn't but a few days, and they get out in the desert, and they come across, and there's a big lake in the middle of their path, and they're like, oh, no, we're in trouble. And so what did God do? As they could hear Pharaoh and his army marching up, God parts the Red Sea, right? Not many people had seen that before. And then they get into the wilderness, and they're like, I'm really hungry, and there's no drive-through, God. So what does God do? Rains down bread from heaven. Hadn't seen that before. And then they're thirsty, right? You got to wash that down with something. And uh, so God just makes water pour out of a rock. Happens all the time. And you think that would have left a mark in their minds, Right? that they would have just responded by praising God, and they did for like a hot second, and then they got grumpy again. And you know what they said? They're like, God, you know what? It would have been better if you'd have left us to die. It would be better if we were back in Egypt as slaves. They weren't grateful. And so what did God do? He threw a massive 40-year rumble strip in their lives, didn't he? And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until that grumbling generation had passed away. And then after that was over, God led him into the promised land just as he had promised. God was faithful. And he drove out the inhabitants and the people. They responded, praising God. There was this spiritual high, and it was great. The electric guitar was there that week. High wore off by about lunchtime, and they began to drift. And they were disobeying God yet again. So God lays out another rumble strip in their life. And the enemies that they had driven out, they began to encroach back in. And uh, the people were like, oh, no. And so they responded, and they repented, and they worshiped, and God, what he did is, it says he raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. But if you're familiar with the book of Judges, we see this phrase a lot. But whenever a judge died, they began to drift away again, returning to their stubborn ways, everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. And so God threw out another rumble strip. And they raised up another judge, he rescued his people, they responded, they repented, they worshiped, it was great, and a hot second letter, the cycle returned over and over again. We see that cycle play out throughout the book of Judges, we see that cycle play out throughout Israel's history. And I don't know if our stories look that much different than Israel's, do they? I think our lives look a lot like that, with that continuous cycle of spiritual drift and rumble strips. We drift away. God calls us back. Because see, like any loving parent, uh, any attentive parent, God, God, he sees, right? He sees all. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. He, he sees all. So he sees. 
He sees when you begin to drift away. He knows before you even begin to drift away. He sees that. And he allows you a little bit of space. He gives you a little bit of rope, a little bit of distance. And then when you don't return, he throws out a rumble strip in your life, doesn't he? And he, and he wakes you up. What he might not throw out, he might not strike you with blight. He might not strike you with mildew or hail. But our loving Heavenly Father will intervene, won't he? He will intervene. And those rumble strips that he throws out in our life, they're jarring, aren't they? They're jarring, they're uncomfortable, they're not fun. And in the moment, it feels like God is punishing you. It can feel like in the moment that God has abandoned you, but in reality, what's happening is God is loving you. He's loving you in the midst of this because he's calling out to you. He's reaching out to you to, to turn your life back around, to reorient your heart, course correcting, drawing you back to him, pursuing his presence again. And what happens is we, we wake up, right? We got that shot of caffeine on the road trip and our eyelids, they're not heavy anymore. And, and we're back into it and, and we get those rhythms going again and then we wake up the next morning and squirrel! And we chase the next shiny object that shows up in our life, don't we? And it draws our attention away from God and once again we drift further away from God. Maybe for a day, Maybe for a week, maybe for a month, maybe for a couple of years. And then comes another rumble strip. Because what we know to be true is that God's going to do whatever is necessary to get your attention. God, God's going to win. I think that's the big story of the Bible, isn't it? God wins. He's going to get your attention. But in the midst of that, um, he may allow you to hit a wall. He may allow you to hit rock bottom out of his love for you. He may allow you to end up in the hospital. He may allow you to end up in jail. God will go to some pretty extreme lengths to get your attention. He'll do whatever it takes to draw you to him. Because here's the thing. Here, here's the grace in this. You can't outrun God's love, amen? You can't outrun God's love. You can't outrun the stretch of his hand. You can't get that far away. There's no place God can't grab you and bring you back. God loves you that much. And he'll do whatever it takes to draw you back to him so that you'll pursue him. And just as God calls Israel to reflect on their spiritual drift, God's calling us to reflect on our spiritual drift. How did we get here? How did we get to expecting much and expecting so little? Where did we where do we take a left and we should have taken a right? But God's not just calling us to reflect. He's also calling us to renew. And that's what we see here in number three. It's that God calls his people to renew their pursuit of him. He's calling his people to renew their pursuit of him. Let's look here at verses 18 and 19. He says, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider... Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they've yielded nothing but from this day on I will bless you, says the Lord. Something changed, didn't it? Something changed between verse 17 and verse 19. Right? Verse 17, remember, um, as we're reflecting, God, he reminds us that in the past, uh, 
He threw out a rumble strip and he says, yet you did not turn to me. You were still, you went right over, you went right into the ditch, crash and burn. But in verse 19, now something changed. He says, from, from this day on, I will bless you. Something happened. We, they turned back. And, and like we knew this day was special, right? Um, but we didn't know why. And I think what we're beginning to see here is there was a significant change that occurred. But what is it? Because, see, there's, there's no indication that the work on rebuilding the temple, uh, that it ever stopped over these past three months since the end of the first oracle. It doesn't say that they stopped working. But while their hands may not have stopped working for God, I think what we see is their hearts stopped pursuing God, didn't they? And so God confronted their spiritual drift. He called them to reflect on how they had arrived there, the, how they arrived at this point of frustration and, and unexpectations. And to see his loving hand at work in their lives. And to see that their renewed pursuit of God was the result of God's unceasing pursuit of them. I think what we see here is God's continued faithfulness, God's grace, God's mercy, God's love. And we see that those rumble strips were just a sign of that. They revealed that. And not only that, but what we see here is that they did their job, didn't they? Because as they reflected, God reoriented. He reoriented their hearts toward him, and they began pursuing God, not just with their, their hands, but with their hearts. Rebuilding the temple, I think what we see here is it went from being uh, something that they felt obligated to do to something that they wanted to do, something that they were honored to take part in doing. Why? Because they once again desired God's presence among them. He was no longer an unwanted guest in an unbuilt home. He was a desired guest. But what I love is this renewed pursuit of God. It wasn't in response to their experiences, was it? There was no bumper crop. The barn wasn't full. The barrels were not full of wine. The jars weren't full of oil. Because on this day, um, they renewed their pursuit of God. God asked them, he says, is the seed yet in the barn? And the, and the obvious answer to that question was no. That, that summer, we already know the, the grain harvest was awful. They had very little, and what little they would have had, they would have put into the ground and planted just a few weeks ago for the next, for the next cycle. But not only that, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, the olive tree, all these things necessary for, for their livelihood, they, they had yielded nothing. Their experiences had not changed. It wasn't like God made them win the lottery, and then they're like, oh man, God, you're awesome, I'm coming back to church. How is the other way? And I think what we see here is we see they didn't act first, did they? God did. God reoriented their hearts. God's spirit was stirring in their hearts, and that's what led to their renewed pursuit of God. And the blessing is simply God's presence among them. And the same is true of us. It's hard to hear, but like we didn't act first. God did. You didn't choose God. He chose you. And what was true of Israel here, I think, is true of us, and it's our big idea this morning. It's that your renewed pursuit of God is the result of God's unceasing pursuit of you. Now I think we start to see good news of the gospel shine through, don't we? See, God didn't promise he didn't promise us material blessings. He didn't promise us agricultural blessings. Just look at the grass in my front yard. That's proof of that. He didn't promise us that. But what he did promise us 
was blessing us with his presence to all who pursue him. And even if you drift away, to all who renew their pursuit of him. And the best part of the blessing is this. You get a bath. You get a bath. We're going to get clean. See, here's the good news of the gospel is that God came to do for you what you could never do. God didn't leave us there in the mud. He didn't leave us there to wallow in the filth of our own sin. Now, God came to us to cleanse us, to be with us, because God never once, not for one second, stopped pursuing you. But if we go back to that illustration from earlier, like, like Israel, we're that little kid playing in the mud, aren't we? We're that little kid playing in the mud, and, and the truth is we like it. We like the mud. We like being dirty. We'd rather keep playing there, but eventually, you know what happens? Eventually, we want a snack. Eventually, we want a snack, and I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't want to touch my snack with my muddy hands, and so we know we need to be cleaned, and we want that snack so bad, but we just don't know how to do it, but we try. We try to clean ourselves, and we fail every time. And then we try harder, we, we scrub harder, and we fail even more, and it's frustrating. And what we have to see is that we, we are that muddy kid, and the only way that our hands are going to be clean is if a parent comes along, and they take us to the sink, and they pour out some soap, and they scrub our hands for us. That's exactly what Jesus did for you. He came to you. And he took you to the cross, and he poured out his blood on you. He poured out his blood to cleanse you, to forgive you. Hear me. Jesus came to scrub you clean. Amen? Deep inside of us, there actually is that longing for a bath. There is that longing to be clean. But what I need you to know is you can't do that. But you don't have to do that. God came to do that for you. I want you to see that your renewed pursuit of God is the result of God's unceasing pursuit of you. Rumble strips and a bath. That's this sermon. Let's be honest, who saw that one coming? And yet I think it captures the passage because I think it captures what God wants for us. He wants us to simply come to him and to abide in his presence. And how he goes about accomplishing that, it's by laying rumble strips in our life to draw our attention and our affection back to him, renewing our pursuit of him. Not because of anything you've done, but because of everything he's done, because of his unceasing pursuit of you. I want to close our time together here in God's word by asking you the same question that I've asked every week of this series as we have renewed our priorities, as we have renewed our expectations, and as we have renewed our pursuit of God. And that question is, what will you renew? How will you respond to what you've heard today from God's word? And as we've done in the past, I want to give you some time to reflect on, on three questions here. I want to give you some time to reflect on them, to pray on them before we transition into responding through communion. And the first question I want you to ask yourself is this. What barriers have you built that are preventing you from pursuing God? What barriers have, have you built 
that are preventing your pursuit of God? What in your life is distracting your attention away from God? What is drawing your affection away from God? What has made it so that God falls further and further down your priority list? What barriers have you built? Number two, what rumble strips has God placed in your life? to get your attention, to wake you up to the danger that you're headed toward, to uh, alert you to the spiritual drift that is occurring in your life and in your heart. And as you reflect on those, as you write those down, I want you to see those as evidence of God's grace. I want you to see them as evidence of God's love intervening in your life to draw you back to him. And then number three, how will you renew your pursuit of God in response to God's pursuit of you? How will you renew your pursuit of God? You know, we began this series with, with five ideas that we could do. And uh, man, if you want some help in taking that step, I'd love to invite you. When we fill out that info card, just check that box, that, that new line that we've added, that I want to renew my pursuit of God and of one another, and I'd love to help you take that next step, whatever it might be for you. But I want us to hear, wherever you're at this morning, I want you to hear God's voice calling out to you. And I want you to feel his loving arms wrapped around you, bringing you back to him. That's what this whole series has been about. We've, we've been distracted. We've drifted away over the course of 18 months. And God is drawing us back to him. This is a season of renewal. But the good news of the gospel is that your renewed pursuit of God is simply a result of his unceasing pursuit of you. So I'm going to give you a moment to reflect and to pray, and then I'm going to pray over us, and then I'm going to lead us in taking communion. So let's go ahead and let's spend some time in reflection. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.